Well, I've had nearly a year to get used to it, and so I uh, had to get used to being a half a century year old. That's really, uh, really old in my, in, my, in my calculations. When you start measuring things in centuries, that means you're really old, right? Uh, whenever I had to wake up one day and be 50, it was actually not as disturbing to my soul as, as I thought it might have been. Uh, it was actually not bad at all. So I promise you, life really starts maybe in your 50. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm certainly enjoying it. And I'll say this, if you're not 40 yet, I loved 40. Uh, 40 was not bad. I got a Jeep out of the deal. When I turned 40, Lori bought me a Jeep for my birthday. So, uh, so again, it was not a bad thing. When I had my awakening was at 30. Again, different ages in this room today, and I don't know where you're on the spectrum, but for me, 30 was the worst. Uh, not 50, not 40. Uh, I, there was something that happened in me at 30 that I realized, oh, I'm an adult. You know, I don't know what it was about turning that, that, that age that I, hey, I've got to really act like an adult. Never mind the fact that I had two kids that I needed to act like an adult. But um, two kids and then one was going to be on the way shortly thereafter. So in that time period, there was something that switched in me. And I actually just kind of felt this kind of, hmm. Now, you got to understand that life was good. I had a great wife. I had two wonderful kids. And again, one was going to be on the way shortly. Uh, as far as a career, if you want to look at it from that perspective, everything was up and to the right. I mean, everything in, in, in our world was moving in the right direction. It was growth. It was upward momentum. Uh, uh, I was a team leader. And everybody on our team, all other four other of us that, that made up that team, or five of us, including Lori, everyone on that team was older than me. Okay, except for Lori. She's not older than me. Uh, everyone else was older than me, and I was leading them, which creates a little team dynamics, to say the least, that here's this young, wet-behind-the-ear 30-year-old. I'm saying, I'm old, man, at 30. So I'm, I'm giving you this backstory to tell you what had happened in my life at 30 was that I knew in, in so many buckets of my life, I felt successful. That was kind of what I would label it as. I was successful in family, in marriage with children, successful. Uh, I was successful in career. And again, the metrics that we measured career, I was successful. I was a team leader. So my influence was growing successful. I could put across my life success to describe a lot of it. And I liked that. And I was an achiever. I'll always like to set a goal out there. So that was good. So why was it that when I turned that year older, that I felt empty? I felt a little disequilibrium generating inside of me um, that I was kind of out of balance maybe, that there was something that happened. Now, pause on my story and let's enter into another guy's story named Bob Buford. Some of y'all know this story because you've read the story and you know Bob Buford and you've heard his, his, his story maybe through his book, Halftime, where he realized after making a bank off of the cable industry long before uh, he was kind of on the ground floor of getting into that cable industry. Well, early, 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 in the early years, he was an entrepreneur. He started making bank. And at some point in his life, he hit this wake-up call where he realized he was successful, but he was also unfulfilled. 
And there was something that was going on inside of him. And so he started going through, through this. And he said it'll happen to men in particular between 35 and 40. And here I am at 30 and I'm like going, what's wrong? What's wrong? I got everything up into the right, but what's wrong that I'm feeling this angst? And I can measure it in two different words. I was successful, but I didn't feel significant. I was successful in in so many ways, but I was unfulfilled because I did not feel or sense or see the significance in life. And so the the subtitle of his book is very much that. It's about going from success to significance. And and again, I'm going to give you the crypt notes of crypt notes of crypt notes of this book. In one statement, what I took away from this book when I read it was success, when we focus on success, when we live for success, success is about me. It's about my success and my accomplishments and what I get out of life and my promotions and my titles and my income and me. And we're measuring and charting always about me. Significance is about others. Success is about me. Significance is about others. And whenever you start living out a life of significance, you start living out a life that's really impacting others' lives. You're making others' lives better. Your, your life can still be growing in success, but when you start focusing on others and not focusing on self, then you get a level of significance added to your life that is a beautiful thing. And I think it's something that we're missing so much in the success, accomplishment, goal-centered life out there. Now, I say all that because I want us to talk about significance today. I want us to talk about what significance is. And here's what I can put it to you, significance of one. We're going to focus on the significance of one. Now, we've been talking about who is your one. Significance, if it's not focusing on self, if it's focusing on others, then I'm asking you the question, and we were asking the question here today. We asked the question last week, who's your one? Who's the one that you are pouring your life into? Who's the one that you're helping to make their life better and more fulfilled? And at what level? Maybe is it just earthly? Maybe is it just mental? Or is there a spiritual? Is there a spiritual healing and growth and that, that, that's happening in them? Here's a verse that we read last week. I want us to come back and review it this week. And that's Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So follow along. Notice this. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now notice the significance of one here. Everyone and anyone, anyone and everyone. God doesn't want to lose a single one. God wants everyone. He's including the whole grand scheme of all humanity. The unknowns, the unnames, the rejects, the ones with criminal records, the ones that you wouldn't want to let your kids hang out with. He is somehow, some way. he is values them, that everyone and anyone should be included in this. Now, there's two axioms that I get from this. You can jot them down. Here they are, what they're worth to you. I don't know. But here they are, two axioms that I get from this. One is significant because everyone matters to God. One, even just one, is significant because everyone matters to God. Now, here's the second axiom. We count people because people count. If everyone counts to God, then everyone needs to be counted. Everyone 
Every person, every individual, every child, every adult, every retiree, every person going to school, the employed, the unemployed, the, that everyone matters. And so, now let's just keep growing this out there. If we want to value everyone and everyone matters because everyone matters to God, then how does that affect you and me? Well, if we're a church and we call ourselves a church, then we say that 34%, as we referred to last week, 34% of Northwest Arkansas doesn't have a church home, isn't connected to a home. Then what does that look like? We've got to break that 34% down to not just a percentage and not just a head count, but to real, live, breathing, eating, sleeping people. And whenever you take the latest census study of Northwest Arkansas, What that equals out to is 182,920 people, individual people that matter, that don't have a church home, that haven't connected with God. Maybe some of them have given up on God or given up on the church, but haven't given up on God. All kinds of different avenues that you can lump people in. So if we're sitting here as a church and we're saying, who's our one? And significance is tied up in the one. And significance is not focusing on self, but focusing on others. Then we as a church, you see where I'm building this out, then we need to be thinking about who our one is. And who our one is that maybe doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. And maybe some of you are even journeying in your own journey and your own relationship with the Lord, and you're not quite there yet. But let's talk about that. Let's understand the significance of one because one, and I'm going to say this again and again and again, one is the most significant number. One is the most significant number. Last week, if you're here, quick review. We talked about one coin. Remember that? We talked about one prodigal son. We talked about one entitled son. We talked about one lost sheep. One is the most significant number. Today, we're going to talk about one man in the midst of a city, 10 cities to be exact, in the Dicopolis. We're going to talk about one woman in the crowd of people. One is a significant number. Remember, your one. Who is your one? We've got three walls out in the gallery area. We've asked you to write one name on there, at least one name, maybe more than a name, but at least one name of somebody that God has put in your life, put in your mind, put in your soul, that you might be able to speak truth in, that you might be able to model, that you might be able to just tell them your story about how God's changed your life. Who's your one? Because one is the most significant number. So stop by there on your way out. Write your one on there. We don't, don't, don't hey, some people put in their first and last names. You don't have to do that, okay? Certainly don't put their phone numbers and all that stuff. We're not, we're not we're, just one name, first name, middle name, make, it, make up a name, I don't care. Uh, we're gonna pray for the made up name if you put that one on there. There's also bookmarkers in the seat pocket in front of you where you could just perforate, take that off. You're gonna keep this. This is your reminder to pray for that one person. You've got 31, or you've got 30 prayers that you can pray for them uh, over the next 30 days or all year long, whatever the case may be. But just be thinking about that and be praying for that. We are praying for that one. Now, one, again, is the most significant number. Where do I get that? Think about all the times that Jesus used one. He used one when he asked for one boy's lunch and he fed 5,000 people. Remember that? One lunch, 5,000 people were fed. It was one lady who broke open an alabaster jar who took one year's of salary and poured it over Jesus that taught the disciples what worship really looked like. 
It was one night on one encounter with Nicodemus, one man who in that one encounter had such a God conversation that many scholars believe it led to his ultimate salvation, him following Jesus, who then some believe that he brought Joseph of Arimathea to faith in Christ, a very wealthy, influential man of Jerusalem, who Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus both combined their money and resources to bring the the spices to Jesus' burial, and Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb that Jesus was buried in. When it was just one encounter, one night with one man. Think about one. Think about the woman at the well in Sychar. Samaritan woman wouldn't talk to a Jew, but Jesus reached across all the barriers and talked to this one Samaritan woman. And he ended up talking to her about her past and her life and her future and how she could have a relationship with God. She goes back and tells and brings the entire village to Jesus. Again, what happened? It happened with one conversation with one person that led an entire village to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, did everyone become a follower? No. But everyone had the opportunity to. Had the opportunity to hear had the opportunity to respond. So think of one today and think of that one as the most important. Now let's today break down two stories. Man, one man in the midst of a city, one woman in the midst of a crowd and how God uses this one encounter. So the first one is a demon-possessed man. Luke chapter 8, be finding it in your Bibles. Luke chapter 8, and we're going to look at this story and unpack this story just very quickly. It's Jesus when he's up in northern Galilee and he gets in a boat and he goes to southern Galilee to the Decapolis. All right, he goes to this area that is largely a Greek area. Alexander the Great, when he was conquering the West, uh, the Eastern world, so to speak, he's conquering the world, he came to this area of the world and he created a Greek community in this area. And it's called the Dicopolis. Since 4th century BC, there's been a Greek population that's lived in this area. There's about 10 cities that make up the Dicopolis. Now, it's called the garrison, and it's in this area that Jesus docks his boat. And when he docks his boat, now listen to this, there's one, a party of one person waiting for him, a naked old man. He's in his birthday suit. Now, that's not something you can unsee, a naked old man. But that's exactly what he walks into. He walks into this man. Now, why is this man naked? Because he has got, he is demon-possessed. Now, this is real. I've dealt with people who have dealt with demons, and I don't envy it, and I don't look forward to that, but I know it's also a reality, and I will approach it in the power and the authority of the Spirit of God and the truth of God in a heartbeat. But it's not something you go out looking for. It's not something you play around with. Well, neither does this man. This man meets Jesus, and and the demons began to speak to Jesus through this man. Jesus asked them, hey, say, what's your name? Because demons have name. Again, there's so much demon th- uh, demonology in this passage of Scripture, I don't even have time to go into it. You just begin to unpack it yourself. But as he begins to interact with them, he says, what's your name? He says, I don't have a name. Basically, I'm a legion. A legion? What's a legion? What name is that? A legion was actually referring to that we don't have one name. We have 6,000 names. Why do I say 6,000? Because a Roman soldier's legion, a legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000. So this one individual had 6,000 plus demons that were impacting him. I dealt with my first demon-possessed person in life. And again, I don't make big of this, make 
try to do grandiose on this, but the reality is, is that when I started talking to this person, this person had one demon, had a name, could describe this person. But by the time this person came to faith in Christ, she was wrestling, dealing with, fighting over her soul up to 10 demons. So just realize demons are not omnipresent. They're, they're, they're individuals and they were literally a part of this. So this person is dealing with 6,000 demons. Now, keeping all of that in mind, what happens to these 6,000 demons is the Jesus cast out the 6,000 demons into 2,000 pigs. All right. Now, some people have debated the passage of Scripture being biblical because Jews didn't uh, have pigs. So why would they have 2,000 pigs? Remember, this is a Greek area. Greeks could have pork. They would eat pork. So there would be, it would be very logical for, for pigs to be there. Now, with all that said, let's look at Luke chapter 8 and let's jump into this story. Then there sailed in, from the country uh, to, uh, of Garcia. He sailed to the country of Garcia, uh, which is the, where the Dicopolis was. On the opposite side of the Galilee, if, you can look at, if you're on the Galilee, uh, Sea of Galilee, you can look north to south and you cannot see one end from the other. You look east to west, you can see one side to the next. And so the, he, he's at one end and he's going to the southernmost end of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, there with him a man from the city who had demons for a long time and had wore no clothes. And he had not lived in the house, but he lived among the tombs. So he was a person of death living with death. And when Jesus saw it, he cried out and he fell down before him. And with a loud voice, that many people believe that the demons began to speak here. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now notice this. The demons themselves have to respond to the authority of Jesus. They are answering Jesus as if he is God. The demons knew who Jesus was. There will be people today who will say Jesus wasn't God. Listen, the demons know who Jesus is, and they're calling him out as the most high God. I beg you, do not, do not torment us. So they were fearing that he was going to send them straight to the pit of hell. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of this man. For many time had seized him and kept him under guard and bound him in chains and shackles. This is how this man lived out his life. But he would break the bonds driven by the demon in the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? This is the answer. He said, legion. For many demons entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs. In Mark, it says, in Mark 5.13, it says there were 2,000 pigs to be exact. Begged him to, uh, uh, pigs feeding there on the hillside. And they begged them to let them enter those. So he gave them permission. And the demons came out of this one man, again, the significance of one, one man and entered into the pigs and the herd rushed in down into, the, into the, the water and drowned. Now, this is not a new story for many of you who've been reading the Bible or exposed to the Bible, but it's a pretty bizarre story. 2,000 pigs go running into the water. You're talking about a, 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 a mess on your hands there. So that's what happens. The city, people in the city hear about it. They come out and they want to meet what's going on here. What happened to this individual? Now, what happens to this individual is beautiful. This man is demon-possessed by thousands of demons, running around naked, chained up, living in the graveyard, 
because he's not welcomed at home. People would call him insane. He wasn't welcomed with anybody. And what does Jesus do? He sets him free. Verse 35. And in those who seen him told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Everyone was saying, this guy's been healed. The man from the demons had gone. Excuse me. Let's, uh, I, I skipped over some verses. Verse 35. Um, back to verse 35. Then the people went out to see that what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone. Now, notice everything that's changed about him. He's now sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's now clothed. He went from naked to clothed. He went from living among tombs, and now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was of his right mind. He went from being crazy to being of his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen had told that it was the demon-possessed man. The man had been, uh, uh, had been healed. And then all the people surrounding the country of the Gersin, ask Jesus to leave. You're not welcome here, Jesus. Thank you so much. Now that just blows my mind. Here's a man who's been crazy, demon-possessed, everything, and they're not welcoming him. They're telling him to leave. Thank you so much. You may go on the boat and get on out of here. Here's the thing. There's people who like Jesus under their control. They like God in their box, but they don't want a God who's going to rock their world. They want a God that they can control, and this is a God that they couldn't control. And so they basically said, you are uninvited to our town. So what does Jesus do with that? Let's go to the second story. Jesus encounters a woman, one woman, one man. One life change, we've already seen. Second life change in a woman. And in this one, you pick it up in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. What a different welcoming committee. Had a committee of one naked man, and then he had a committee of an entire village waiting for him. What a vast different stories going on here. And then when he gets out of the boat, he's going to encounter a different scenario. Now, here's what I want us to be challenged with today. As you look at this passage, you see these two different stories back to back. You see the significance of one. That's the common thread, the significance of one. And a life-changing encounter with Jesus, but how it impacts the many. One impacts the many, just like one lunch feeds 5,000, just like one uh, woman being, being uh, shared with in Sychar in, in John chapter 4. She goes back and invites her entire village. We're going to see where one encounter with one person changes a lot of people. But here's what Satan will do. He's going to distract us from the one. He's going to move us away from the one. He's going to send us on detours of the one. And I want to tell her story by breaking it down, that we need to be careful of the detours of significance. Significance is pouring into different people. One, one detour that we need to be aware of is allowing other people's agenda to dictate your priorities. Allowing other people's agendas to dictate your priorities. When somebody comes with their agenda and they're telling you what you need to do with your life, their agenda is that. And you, you ever have somebody who has, likes to text and they text you, but you don't text them right back. And then they get upset because you didn't text them right back. You know what they said in essence is 
I'm going to send a message to you in your life and in your whatever you're doing in your world, and I want my message to interrupt all of your life right now. And I expect you to stop everything that you're doing and answer me in everything that I need. I want to be the center of your universe. You ever have a friend like that? There are people that may be a text message or somebody who walks into your office or walks up and just wants to take over your time without any consciousness of what may be going on in your life. They're going to want to put their agenda on your agenda. Be careful of that. Notice what happens in verse 41. Jesus, I don't know that he even got out of the boat. And this is what happens. And when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him and they were waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was the ruler of the synagogue. So this is a person of influence. He has a name. He has a position. He has a title. He is a person of influence. You want to get close to him. He can maybe expand our ministry, Peter's probably thinking. And falling at his feet, he implored him to come to his house. Why? For he had an only daughter who was about 12 years of age, and she was dying. 12-year-old daughter about to die. Is that emergency? Absolutely. Is that emergency? Should you respond to that? Absolutely. You should do all you can to respond to that. But some understand what I'm saying here. Not everybody's emergencies are your emergency. Not everybody's agenda is your agenda. You need to make sure you're on God's agenda for your life at that time. Now, the good news is Jesus is going to go to Jairus' house. The bad news is, is she's going to die. His daughter, 12-year-old daughter, is going to die. The good news is, is that when Jesus shows up at a funeral, he breaks it up. And he brings her back to life. But in that tension of that moment, Jairus, only thing he knew of is, I want you to come to my son. Now, now again, this is not the only time Jesus does this. There's one other time when Martha texts Jesus, let's say, and says, hey, your friend Lazarus, plays the friend card, your friend Lazarus is about to die. And what does Jesus do? He breaks camp. He rushes over. He gets the fast track over to, to Bethany because he's got to get to the dying uh, of, his, of his best friend. No, he waits two more days before he breaks camp. Their agenda did not become his priorities. We have to be careful. Let your priorities drive your agenda, not your agenda drive your priorities. We understand what is most important in that moment. Now, again, was Jairus' daughter important? Absolutely. She was very important. Was Lazarus? Very important. Great guy. Absolutely. But don't allow the urgency of someone else to become your urgency. Here's a great example in 21st century, or 20th century at least. President Eisenhower. Every president since President Eisenhower, right up to President Donald Trump, has had a personal hotline connection to an evangelist that's now gone to be with the Lord, Billy Graham. Eisenhower was the first that we know of that had that direct contact that anytime you wanted somebody to pray for you, anytime you needed spiritual advice, you would call up the president. Uh, the president would call up Billy Graham. Billy Graham would pray, give you his spiritual advice. It's a beautiful connection. A very influential individual, Billy Graham was, no doubt, to say the least. There was a time, it's been told, that President Eisenhower contacted Billy Graham early in the morning because he wanted to talk to him. What does Billy Graham say? I don't have time. Not right now. He puts the president off. He tells him he will call him back later. 
Can you imagine that? The president of the United States, Ike, he's been the general. He's a five-star general. He loved the Allied forces to beat Germany. Why wouldn't you stop everything that you're doing and go to him and immediately answer him? This is what he said when he calls him back an hour later. And Ike wanted to know what was going on that he couldn't take his call at that time. He said, well, actually, Mr. President, I was meeting with the king of the universe and I was in the middle of prayer time. And I thought, if you're calling me, it must be really important. So I took 10 or 15 extra minutes and prayed for our conversation before I called you back. Now, do you see the priority and you see the agenda? You got to make sure you're living out God's priority for your life and not somebody else's agenda for your life. Think about it like that. There's a, a challenge, I think, before all of us in this busy, busy, busy world that we live in. And that's what we're going to say yes to and what we're going to say no to. And if you say yes to everything and no to nothing, you will not be living out the priority that God has for your life. There's a book called The Power of the Positive No. When he says that whenever we learn to say no to things and we say a deeper yes to something, then that actually is a more stronger, more deliberate, more intentional life. He says that the author says it like this. I slowly came to appreciate the main stumbling block is often not the inability to get to yes, but a prior inability to get to no. Anytime you say no, make sure that it's rooted in a deeper Yes. It's easier to say no with a deeper yes is burning inside. We as a church, we as a pastoral team, we are evaluating rigorously, looking intensely at everything that we do because we realize you are busy, busy, busy people. And we don't want to ask you to do something and then all of a sudden it just be busy, busy, more busy for you. You need to do that as a family. Listen, families, listen, parents. Not every opportunity your kids have in life is an opportunity. Sometimes the opportunities are distractions. You need to make sure the agenda that you're living is the priorities that God has given. And if it's drawing you away from, distracting you, deterring you from, listen, I love it last year that our, 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 our children's ministry, our kid men ministry said a, a, a deeper yes that we're going to reach more families this year. We're going to reach more children this year. We're going to start four or five new small groups. And I love it that from last year to this year, they went from 16 uh, professions of faith in the children's ministry to 44 professions of faith in the children's ministry. Would you give God a hand for that? That's incredible. In our kids' ministry. Well, guess what? They're saying, uh, we're saying no to some things so that we can say yes to some things here. So we're starting a preteen ministry. That's one of the things we've said yes to. We've said yes to more special needs ministries because we've realized that there's a need for that. We've said yes to, we need more small groups among our children because we want to say yes, a positive yes. It means we're going to have to say no to some things, but we're going to say a positive yes to that. A positive no to that, to the other things, so we can say a deeper yes to these things. If you want to be a part of any of this, join in and just sign up and, and drop an email. That's the only commercial you're going to get today. Number two, being engrossed in the future that you miss the present. 
Again, I don't have time much to develop this, but let me just say this. Jesus is under high demand. He should have stayed down south if he wanted to retreat. They didn't want him, and nobody came around him but a naked man. And so uh, at this point, now he's back up north. And now back up north, everybody wants Jesus around. Everybody starts pressing in on Jesus. In fact, in verse 42, it says it like this. He says, and now when Jesus returned, oh, excuse me, in verse 22, and Jesus went and the people pressed in around him. Where was he going? He was going to Jairus' house to help Jairus' daughter. That's good, right? But instead of just making a beeline for Jairus' daughter, he walked slowly through the crowd. The people were pressing in around him. And this is what happened. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. I'll let the doctors explain what was maybe going on in her, her life. But look what she did. She spent every dime she had. She went to every doctor. She tried every herbal. She tried everything she could to find healing in her body. And she was now bankrupt and poor. She could not be healed by anyone. Go to the next verse. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe, just the very end of his garment, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Now, think about it. Jesus is not looking at her. She's coming up from behind. She doesn't touch his body. She touches only the fraying on the end of his robe. And from that, Jesus recognizes that he has just sent out power and she has been healed. And just imagine that. So as you're going through this, Jesus could have just kept plowing on through. Hey, Jairus' daughter is sick. Hey, I got to get there before she dies. I got to get there in a hurry. But instead, he's walking slowly through the crowd, enough that he stops the processional. And he turns around and he asks this question, who touched me? Who touched me? What, what, what an question. In, in the midst of a ton of people around him, when all denied it, Peter said, Master, come on, man. Look at all these people. We're in a crowd of people surrounding you, pressing in on you. Nobody's going to know who touched you. But Jesus said, someone, the power of one, touched me, and I perceive that the power has gone out from me. Listen, there is a tremendous power when we don't just live for the future. Our agenda, or even our plans, but we live in the present. What is God doing right now? Who is God putting in your path right now? Let me tell you about an interruption I had in my life recently. Interruption came and I was in the middle of this think. I'm a, I by nature think macro, think future, planning, all that kind of stuff. That's just kind of where I'm, uh, how I'm wired. And I was in that mode. I was in the zone and an interruption comes into my life. I don't like interruptions. Okay, I am, I am in the zone. This is going to be important. This is going to be for the future of the church. People are waiting on me getting this stuff to them. All that kind of mentality is going on in my mind. And this interruption in the middle of this moment, I did not need it. Now, I'll be honest with you. I had a bad attitude about it, if you can't figure that out. I wasn't happy about it, but in the split second, I also thought, Mike, you need to say yes to this. There's a deeper yes that you need to say yes to here. So I said yes. And all I can say, it was a one-on-one encounter. And in that one-on-one encounter that lasted for about an hour, it was one of the richest experiences of my week, not of my life, but of my week 
And when I left that one-hour meeting and came back to my big macro, high-level future thinking, that meeting spoke volumes to this right here. So what did I do? I had to leave my future thinking and live in the present moment. You're going to walk out here and you're going to meet somebody in Walmart. You're going to be filling up the gas in the car. You're going to see somebody you haven't seen in years. And you're going to be on in a task, on an agenda. You're going to be moving quickly, swiftly through crowds of people and lots of agendas. And what we need to do is we need to pay attention to the people right next to us. The people who are touching just the fringes of our garment. And if we'll just pause long enough, care deep enough, maybe that's the one that we'll have a gospel conversation with. Beware. Detours will happen when other people's agendas dictate your priorities. People are engrossed in the future and they miss the present. But number three is whenever we just become a disciple, but not a disciple maker. Now, again, this is actually a misdefinition of a disciple because a disciple is a disciple maker. Our definition of a disciple around here is becoming fully obedient, multiplier, following Jesus. So it's not just following Jesus and not just being obedient, but I'm actually multiplying that obedience. Okay, that any discipleship that does not result in a disciple maker is not discipleship. Okay, it's only sanitizing our lives. We need to realize we are called to make disciples. Read this verse with me. We read it last, last week. If you didn't memorize it, memorize it with me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Read it with me. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If we only understood that's what we're called to, that's the mission. He wants to do this through us. Listen, it is beautiful when you have your Bible studies in the morning. It's awesome when you have your prayer groups. Meet together in communitas groups. Go on retreats. We've got a women's retreat coming up in September. We've got a men's retreat coming up in, in, in August. With that, a couple's retreat. And what I wish I knew, all of this is out there. All of this is available. And I love it when we're a part of Bible studies and listen to podcasts podcast and somebody tells me about a new book that they've read and what God's teaching them. But if all I am doing is sanitizing my own life and I'm not making disciples, I've missed it. If you go back up to the demon-possessed man, notice this about him. So he's sitting at Jesus' feet. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. He's soaking it up like a sponge. And what does it say in verse 38? And the man, again, Jesus wasn't welcomed in the town. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. He wanted to stay with Jesus. He wanted to stay in Bible study mode. He wanted to stay in the prayer group. He wanted to stay in his communitas group because it was such a sweet Bible study. And he had, he was being fed so much in this, in this new group that he was a part of. He didn't want to go anywhere else. And so when Jesus moved, he wanted to move with Jesus. And you can't fault him, right? But when we are about being a disciple, but not being a disciple maker, we will miss the role of being significant one in somebody else's life. So what does Jesus do? I mean, this guy's a brand new believer. He, he should have said, hey, uh, John, you stay here for a while. I'm going to take this guy with me for a while. I'll come back and get you later. You'd think that Jesus would think like that. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't let him go with him. But Jesus sent him away. 
He, had, he sent him away. How many times do we say live sent every week here? He sent him away. So here's this new believer. He's been in the Bible, said with Jesus, maybe only a few hours, maybe a few days, and now he is being sent away. What a mean thing. What a re- Jesus didn't reject him. He empowered him. He sent him away. Where did he send him to? What did he send him to do? To return to your home. Start with your family. Some of y'all, when you write your one, your one may be your spouse. Your one may be your children. Your one may be your mother, your father. He sent him back to his home. And he said, what what, what did he say do? He even empowered him in this. He said, declare how much God has done for you. He even scripts him. I want you to go back to your family. I want you to go back to your family. And here's what I want you to do. Just tell them what God did. Just tell them about your life before Christ. Tell them about how you came to know Christ. And tell them about your life since Christ. He told him, tell them your story. Tell them your God story. When you do that with anybody and everybody, whether it's over, over a cup of coffee or it's on an elevator or it's in a cab or it's an Uber driver or it's a barista, you are sharing and you are showing Jesus in everyday conversations. You're just telling your story. I love it. And what does he do? Does he do exactly that? No, he doesn't go straight home. He first of all goes to his whole city. And what he does, again, the power of one, is he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, I think he made it home. And I think his home welcomed him in. But he went to the city as well. Do you have a heart for this city? Do we have a heart for this city? Do you have a heart for the people you live, work, learn, and play with? Maybe you start at home. Maybe you go home and then you go to the community. Maybe you go to the city. Maybe you go to the gym. Maybe you go to, maybe you go to, the, uh, maybe you go to where your kids are doing sports and, and so forth. Let me tell you about something that happened in my life as I, as I wrap things up today. Nine years ago, I can tell you when it, when it happened. Nine years ago, I woke, woke up to a stark reality that I was living in a bubble. I could not name... One single person that I knew and had a relationship with on an ongoing basis that was far from God. All of my friends were Christians. All of my family was Christians. I worked at a Christian place, right? All day long, I'm at a church working among Christians. I go home and live with Christians. We have Bible studies in our homes. I'm a part of all my friends that we hung out with on the weekends were Christians. We went on vacation with Christians. Our kids played in a Christian sports league. I listened to James Dobson on how to raise my kids. I, 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 I listened to my Christian radio so that I could only hear Christian tunes. So all of my life was nothing but a great big Christian bubble. But something happened nine years ago. Whenever I woke up to that, I said, this is not right. And God began to shift the way I saw the world and the way I lived within the world. Things like we took our kids out of the Christian sports league and we put them into the community rec league. I went from watching, coaching, to coaching baseball with the kids. So I could get to know other people who were far from God. And you know what God did? God put me back in relationships with people that I had gone to high school with that I had never shared Jesus with, that I started 
seeing on a regular basis. God changed my heart in my own neighborhood. I lived in a neighborhood at the end of a street. Whenever everyone pulls into the garage, they shut the garage door behind them and they go sit on the back porch and they eat their dinner or they sip their teas. But we don't talk to people outside. And I lived in my Christian bubble and I got to know all of my neighbors. Now I know every single neighbor in my area. I have a specific day that I pray for my neighbors. I am praying for my neighbors now like I never prayed for them before. I began, I began to thank you. I, be, I, be, I began to see my world different, operate in my world different. I began to go to the gym differently. I began to interact with people differently. I went from having zero people far from God to I got to live on mission right here in Northwest Arkansas. I don't say this in any way to promote myself. Please hear me. I just want to show you the contrast from zero I counted over the past nine years people that I have interaction with, 64 different people in the past nine years that I've either shared the gospel with, had gospel conversations with. My prayer list on Saturday morning consists of, I prayed for them yesterday morning, nine skeptics in my life. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't go to any church. They They don't even make bones about it. But I have nine skeptics in my life that I'm praying for by name. What am I saying? Please, let us realize that I'm only one. I'm only one. But with the Spirit of God inside of me, I am one with all the power of the universe. And I can go to just one other and I can make a difference in their life. I can be a part of a significant transformation that can happen in their life. Would you today, in this time, take time to pray for your one? If you are a person who doesn't yet know, I don't know that I have a relationship with Jesus, please do this. Just real simple. Bow your head where you are. Say a prayer like this. Jesus, I want to give myself to you. I don't even fully know what it means. Thank God I'm not a demon-possessed person walking around like this other man. But God, I want to see the change in my life that you saw in him. Something like that. Say your own prayer you're here today and you you know I'm I'm a follower of Christ but I've not been sharing with my ones I've been living in the Christian bubble and I want my life to be significant for the kingdom of God let's pray let's take time and pray for that one would you bow your heads father god know our hearts know our minds know where we're thinking and what is consuming us lord and if it's not your priority If it's not your agenda, then God, get us off of our agenda. Get off of other people's agendas and let us know what is priority. Help us to say a deeper yes while we say positive no's. Help us to say yes to the right opportunities and no to the wrong opportunities that pull us away from you, pull us away from others. Lord, help us to not just see the future, but live fully, fully, fully in the present. Lord, use this time to make us disciple makers and not just disciples. Lord, be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship with me?